Morning all, would you like to sit down, thank you. Chris, can I have my candle lit, please? Okay, let's just pray. Father God, please speak to us through these ancient words and make them today words. Give us ears to hear what you would have us hear and hearts that yearn to respond as you would have us respond. Amen. Okay, thanks to Corin for our reading. Um, if you want to follow it on your Bible, in your Bible even, it's um, page 1234, I think she said. Uh, somewhere near the back, if you're not quite sure where that is. Um, this is talk two on the book of Revelation. Uh, Debbie gave us a really good overview last week. Uh, and if you weren't here, I can recommend the recording, and I'll leave this one at the back when I finish, if you need one. Um, we had some friends around for dinner last night, and they go to the same church as a guy called Jack Batten. Um, and I used to love hearing Jack Batten preach. Um, Jack would always start with a joke, and he'd get the whole church laughing, and it would just sort of set everything off in the right way. Um, and I thought, I'll tell you my favorite joke. A boy went into a grocer's shop, and he asked for a pound of apples. And the grocer said, red apples or green apples? And the boy said, doesn't really matter. I've got my bike outside. Now, I've always loved that joke. Um, but Jack Batten would never have told a joke like that. It, it, it doesn't really make much sense, does it? And, and I think the book of Revelation is a bit like my joke. You can't always explain it. Um, I was looking at the opening line of our reading, um, which, which I don't really understand. Um, and that doesn't bode well, does it, for the rest of this talk? Um, it, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. Now, that's ambiguous, I think. Is it an instruction to the angel of the church to write a letter? Or is the letter written to the angel of the church? You don't normally write to angels, do you? So I, I wonder if using angel is just code for church leader. Most of Revelation is written in code. Times weren't safe for Christians. We know the letter was written by John, uh, based on visions and conversations with Jesus. And John himself was imprisoned at this time, so maybe it wasn't prudent to be naming names. I, I don't think it really matters much who the angel was. Um, the next bit says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So it's the words of Jesus. And we've got that perfect number seven thing that Debbie was talking about last week. Seven golden lampstands, seven stars, which decoded, or, or sorry, seven stars, seven golden lampstands. Decoded means seven vicars and seven churches. Paul wrote to this same church in Ephesians 1.15, and he praised them for their love of God and others. But since then, it had become a loveless church, and cracks were appearing. And John reminds the church leaders here that Jesus is the head of the body of believers. And maybe the vicars have got carried away with their own sense of importance. Perhaps they were following their own agendas, which is easy enough to do, I guess, if you're a vicar. I, I get above myself sometimes, and I'm just a guitar player. Um, and Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You may think we're sitting in a church building here, but it's meant to be a golden lampstand. And, and note, by the way, that the Bible doesn't advocate the use of low-energy light bulbs. 
And the thing about Revelation, it's, um, it's that weird book at the back, isn't it? It's written in metaphorical, allegorical, and impenetrable language. And that angel bit was certainly confusing. And the stars and the lampstand imagery, well, that's rather poetic, isn't it? But the rest of this letter, it's short, it's sharp, and it's very direct. I think Jesus' message isn't meant to be misunderstood. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Now, Ephesus was associated with worship of the goddess Artemis. Immoral practices were rife in the city. And John acknowledges that the church in Ephesus was working to God's higher standards. And the church today still wrestles with this need to live up to God's higher standards and not fall into adopting the sinful practices of the world. Instead of Artemis, maybe our modern struggles are with the goddess Internet, the evils of Facebook, and the temptations of the, sh the shopping channel, maybe. What's your poison? We need to be honest and accept that we're all sinners. We'll regularly fall into sin. But we shouldn't encourage wickedness or tolerate evil people. That can be a minefield in the workplace. Which conversations do you duck? And whose opinions and behaviours do you try to influence? If you've got any tips, I could use some for my office sometimes. And could we spot a false apostle if we had one here? How do you know I'm not misleading you now? The Bible says, be on your guard. Critically examine what I say. Did I make up that bit earlier about angels being vicars? We all know Simon's no angel. <laughs> Matthew 7.15 says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. I didn't wear my lamb's wool jumper today in case it worried you. Verse 3, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. We're all called to work hard, patiently endure, suffer without quitting, which is easy to say, but harder to live out. It's one thing to be born again, but growing up's another thing entirely. And the Christian life isn't meant to be easy, and often it's not. I think the main point is in verses four and five, but I'm gonna skip over that and go to verse six, which says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Sorry, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whether we realize it or not, whenever we're working for God's cause, we're working for God. I don't think anyone really knows who the Nicolaitans were particularly, but they sound dodgy, don't they? This church was doing some, some things right if it was working against the bad guys. So this acknowledges that and maybe finishes the letter on a more encouraging note. But let's just go back now to verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. My first love was George Best, a football genius who wore the perfect number, seven. Coincidence? I'm not sure. I, I play football most Saturdays. In my head, I'm still trying to be George Best. When I first fell in love with God, though, I think that was a, a completely different thing. I was on the coach to Cheltenham. I was reading a book by David Watson called Is Anyone There? Um, and I realized then, I think, that I could start looking for reasons to believe in God rather than looking for reasons not to believe in God. And not long after that, I was walking through St. James's Park in London. And I, I had this sort of revelation that God was alive and real. The blossom on the trees was the blossomest blossom, as Dennis Potter said once. Uh, I could see all the colors of the rainbow sort of sparkling in the water fountains. 
Um, and I just got it. I, it just sort of struck me, really. I knew that God was um, a great big God. Um, I saw it was God's creation, not some cosmic accident. Um, God was a great big God, and I knew somehow he loved me. And I started to see myself, I think, from that point, as God sees me, a prize of creation, uh, but also a sinner who needed to change. And I decided that day I was going to give my yes to God. And I'd probably been living in a way that wondered whether God made any sense. And suddenly my challenge was to, try to, was to change and learn to live in a way that wouldn't make any sense without God. And everything would be different in future. And I felt exhilarated. Um, Sandra talked about mountaintop experiences recently. Um, and that was a mountaintop experience for me. And then verse 5 says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. If you compared my football skills now to when I was young, you'd see what heights I've fallen from. I could run then. I can also look back and see that I've fallen from those giddy first love heights with God. I know I've grown a lot in my faith, and my understanding of God has deepened in many ways. But I wish I could recapture that initial joy, that awe, that sense of wonder and excitement, if I'm honest. Um, does God just become part of our routine? Can we not mature as Christians and retain that initial exhilaration? Maybe that's just me. I know I'm being challenged at the moment to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Verse 5 says, Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus isn't messing about here. This is a threat and it's blunt. Here's my rough translation. Um, Remember at the start when you were full of the love of Jesus and you wanted to spread his message and follow his example. Well, you're still meant to be doing that. So go back and have another go or else God will withdraw. It's a wake-up call, isn't it? A message that applies to all churches. We need to take it seriously here, I think. A self-centered, loveless church isn't really a church at all. If it's not shining out the love of Jesus, God won't be in it. He'll turn the lights out when he leaves. And in the dark, that's a bad place to be. So what is a loveless church? Or to put that another way, maybe, what are the hallmarks of a golden lampstand church which God is in and at the center of? And how might that apply to us? Maybe you're new here. If so, you'll be well-placed to judge whether we're a loveless church. Um, although Jesus said, don't judge, so please be easy on us. Um, my faith journey didn't actually start with reading Christian books. Um, God works through people. I had no church background as a kid. Uh, I got thrown out of the boys' brigade when I was 11 because I used to play football for Tilgate Amers and they wouldn't let me go to church on a Sunday. Um, church seemed confrontational then. Now, today is July the 4th. 26 years ago today, on a bridge in St. James's Park, I asked Sue to go out with me. Happy anniversary, sweetheart, by the way. It was ambiguous, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, Sue was a Christian then, and I wasn't. Um, I used to hang around uh, on Sunday mornings to catch her coming out of St. Mildred's Church after services. Uh, and then one week, um, she didn't come out when I was expecting her. Um, and she didn't come out, and I thought, well, I better go in and find her. And she was inside, and she was talking. Surprise, surprise, she was talking. Um, and, and I met some of her Christian friends that day. And after that, I started to slide in at the back of church um, during the last song, because I realized I could get a coffee. Um, and I, I got to know her friends better. 
And then after that, I started reading Christian books. So what was it that enabled me to go from not being in church to sort of standing here now? Well, the right answer is God, of course. But the answer is also God's people. God uses people. The people in Sue's church, they were friendly. I thought they'd attack me and try to convert me. Uh, but they gave me space, really, and just took an interest in me, which was what I needed. I wasn't really like them, I don't think, but it did make me feel at home. So if you are new here, I hope you can feel the love of God in this place. And tell us if you can't, because we may need to change. Here's another perfect number seven reference for you. Um, I first came here one Sunday, seven years ago, um, when I wasn't on music group duty at St. Mary's that day. There was no vicar here then, um, and I just came along to see how people were doing. And I was overwhelmed, really, by the warm and loving welcome I got from people like Patricia, and Hoven and Debbie, Roger and Jackie, David Butcher. Um, so I came back another time. And then the next time, I brought Sue. And then we sensed maybe God was calling us here. So we came. And now you're stuck with us. <laughs> God works through people, people like you. So be encouraged. Now, you've heard people ask the question, what would Jesus do? And I'm not sure anyone can really answer that question because Jesus was always surprising people. So who knows what he would do? A better question might be, what did Jesus do? Because we can evidence that from the Bible. And in John 5:19, Jesus said, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And guess what we should be doing? what Jesus did. But what does that look like? Well, Jesus was a bit of a party animal, so maybe eating, drinking, talking to people is a big part of it. And Jesus said a lot about love, too. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. So we need to keep the things of God at the front of our minds. We aren't meant to live self-centered lives. And Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And he told his Good Samaritan parable to make it clear that love your neighbor means to love everyone, everywhere. That's what Jesus did. He even loved his enemies because that's what God the Father does. And God doesn't share our prejudices. If we have enemies and they're people who God loves, who do you think needs to change their view? Anne Matheson challenged us recently to be, to be ready here to welcome anyone and everyone. And maybe you drew a mental line when she mentioned paedophiles. There is no line, though. There's nothing in Jesus' teaching that says we can reject some people as the scum of the earth. Because what did Jesus do? He spent more of his time with scum of the earth people than he ever did with pillars of society people. And that's a huge challenge for us, isn't it? Love's important to God. And it's okay to love ourselves, too. Because Jesus loves us. And Jesus loves us because God the Father loves us. And he tells us to do the same as him. He sends his Holy Spirit to nourish and cherish us. So do listen to that small, still voice that says good things about you. And don't ever think there's nothing good about you because your heart is good. If it wasn't, God's Holy Spirit wouldn't dwell there. Love's important to God. In John 13, Jesus said, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 
We're called to be this lampstand on a hill radiating light all around. And yet sometimes as I walk through this world searching for light in the darkness of insanity, I ask myself, is it the church that's the problem? Where's the harmony? Do we, do we all need to repent and change? The church is meant to be the bride of Christ, isn't it? That's not just our Broadfield bit of the church, or the Church of England bit of it, but the whole Christian church. The bits like our bit, and the bits we don't think are like our bit, and the bits we may not like bits of, and the bits we don't really want to know too much about, and all the other bits too. Jesus wasn't actually an Anglican, but he loves us anyway. How we love one another, that's how we demonstrate our discipleship. And it's how Jesus' light shines brighter, and God's heart is for unity. I think God's heart must hurt when he sees Christians attacking and undermining other Christians, and we're all guilty to some extent of that, aren't we? But we're not the only flame in town. We're called to unite with other Christians, to love each other, encourage each other, build each other up, work together and shine brighter together. An isolated church is a loveless church. Now we're in a unique position here to build fruitful relationships with the Catholics and the Fellowship. It's the town-wide service tonight, where all the different churches, thank you John, where all the different churches need to worship together, so I meet to worship together, and I think maybe God's knitting something together in Crawley. That doesn't normally happen. Churches coming together from different faiths, different denominations. Are our hearts for unity? It's wise to take, to take stock of where we are and how we're doing on our journey of faith. And it's better to be honest with ourselves before God and seek to change our attitudes now if we need to, rather than find ourselves twisting in the, in the glare that the full beam of God's searchlight may bring to bear on us later. So can Christ the Lord's lamp shine brighter? Well, how dazzling are we already? We're seen as a successful church in many ways, but even an inferno can burn down to an ember. Whatever happened to that volcanic ash cloud? And the light is for seeing with and our immediate future. But it looks a bit unclear here, doesn't it? We could use more light. I think one of the tests of how well we love one another will be how we manage in the time between Simon leaving and our new vicar arriving. It will be illuminating in many ways. Will Christ the Lord's flame fade? Will it radiate more brilliantly? Simon's been very important for this church. I think we've grown so much under his leadership, and we're certainly going to miss you. But what's that thing in the reading? Just as John reminded those Ephesian church leaders that Jesus is the head of the body of believers, I think we need to remember that this isn't Simon's church. It's not our church either. It's God's church. We're carrying this torch for God. And maybe some of us are worried whether we'll cope without Simon. I think whenever Jesus got frustrated with his disciples, it wasn't because they were incapable. It was because of how capable they were. Jesus chose them because he could see the greatness in them. God has an amazingly high view of people. He uses people, people like us. He thinks we can do amazing things. And this next year, well, it could be a period of confusion and decline for Christ the Lord, or it could be a time of growth and fruitfulness. And when the new vicar arrives, if he or she uh, is going to find a church, a group of Christians who are united 
easy to work with, expectant, ready to go for God, then I think we're all going to have to rise to the challenge of helping to grow this church through that interval. I think that's what Simon would want, and I believe that's what God would have us do. This is a real chance for us to grow as individuals and to unite and grow as a loving family. And I think Simon and God both believe that's what we're capable of. And we need to believe that too and go for it, I think. If we dig deep, we can fly higher. Now, if you only remember one thing I've said, please remember this. Jesus only did what he saw his father do. And we should do what Jesus did. And what Jesus did most was pray. So can I encourage you to make some time to listen to God? To think and pray about what you personally are going to do to help to make a difference here after Simon leaves. God's chosen us to be here at this time. He knows what we're capable of and he believes in us. And if we encourage one another, support and care for one another, pray for each other and seek God's guidance together, then I believe God's eternal flame will keep burning brightly here and our love for him, for our neighbours and for one another will be the shining proof of that. So let's pray. Father God, as verse 7 says, I pray that we will have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to our church, that you will help us to overcome, and that you will give us the right to eat from the tree of eternal life in the paradise of God. May we go into these changing and uncertain times with our faith on fire, burning with renewed passion to help, to help your church here be a beacon of truth and hope and a shining light of the love of God for all to see. Amen.